there, Sexy Techies. Hey, everyone. Hope you're having a great week. And if you waited until the weekend to listen to our episode, listen earlier next time. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Hope you're having a good weekend. (laughs) So this was one of the first weekends in a while that was not dominated by our kids' activities, but we actually had some adult activities going on. Yeah, we had um, a good good little party, no kids party. Well, yeah, so we we did. But but before we get into that, yesterday we recorded our first podcast on somebody else's podcast. Uh, We were interviewed on the Rando Banter podcast. Yeah, I feel famous. (laughs) So my brother and my good friend... Larry and Duff, they run a podcast called Rando Banter. So if you want to learn more about why we got into podcasting, uh, how we met, a little bit of both of our experiences, what else did we talk about, May? I don't know. I like blacked out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid to listen to it again. It's a different type of experience (laughs) because like for our podcasts, we have to prepare so much because we're, you know, we have to do research and we don't know what we're going to say, but in the interview style, we didn't prepare anything because we didn't know what yeah, they were going to ask us to talk they about. Were just, we're just, just going to talk about, our about ourselves. Yeah, it was very conversational. Um, it was nice. Yeah, there's it's a nice change of pace. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how there's like so many different styles of of podcasting out there. Whether it's more conversational, whether it's you know data driven research, or um, I've even heard some people just like literally just like read from a script, but you know it's nicely written. Yeah. Um, so our podcast comes out on Wednesdays. Theirs actually comes out on Tuesday. So by the time you're listening to this, it will be out. So if you want to check it out, um, go ahead and look up the Rando Banter podcast. Yeah. Good people. But what May was mentioning uh, before that is, so on Friday night, we one of our good friends uh, had a birthday party. Mm-hmm. So this was an adult birthday party rather than one of the dozens of kids birthday parties we go to <laughs> every year. And we actually did axe throwing for the yeah. first time. I know it's been like a super trendy thing for a little bit, but um, I've never done it. I've seen people do it. It looks like super fun. I thought it would be super dangerous. Just the thought of like drinking and throwing weapons, <laughs> but it was cool. What yeah, did you no, think? <laughs> uh, I agree. They, you know, they had somebody watching us the entire time, <laughs> somebody who worked there. So they made sure everything was safe. Uh, but yeah, it was awesome. It took a little bit of getting used to yeah. how to throw the axe and yeah. like how hard you had to throw it and when you were, when you had to release it to, right. you know, spin the optimal number of times and <laughs> get stuck in the board. But, uh, yeah. you know, once you did it a little bit, I think we both got decent at it and yeah. Pretty much everybody who I was just going to spend say, some time at it. I feel like everyone who went more than once got it stuck in the board. Yeah, at least once. So. I'd say it's a worthwhile activity to give a, a shot for Absolutely. an adult group of friends or for a party or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of got me thinking about. Well, first of all, as I was like sitting there with like wine in one hand and like an axe in the other hand I'm like how did this become a thing like why is this a thing (laughs) but it's such a trendy thing and everyone's doing it and especially now that like the fall season is approaching and like falls upon us people are really like getting their lumberjack on and like doing like axe throwing (laughs) so I just smashing some pumpkins yeah 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 all of the things um all the fall things um so I decided to (laughs) shout out to blink 182 I decided to look into the origin of 
axe throw the axe throwing business so like not just axe throwing but urban axe throwing is what they call it when you do it um not on at the a farm. bar with friends yeah okay <laughs> so of course when i started looking into axe throwing i started with the history of axe throwing so uh historians believed that the first axes were used in the early middle ages as a form of weaponry the but the act of actually throwing an axe was not actually used in war it was used in hunting because in a war, if you think about it, if you throw your weapon, then you're pretty much defenseless and screwed. Better have a bunch of axes. <laughs> I know. So um, it wasn't like the ideal war weapon. It sure. was mostly used for hunting, which um, kind of made me feel better that I wasn't um, doing a sport that, you know, was primarily to kill someone. What about those medieval knights? That they, they would swing those battle axes. Yeah, that's a different kind of axe. (laughs) (laughs) So so there's this like debate on where the first axe throwing competition originated. Um, Some historians say that it was frontiersmen of North America. Others say that early Celtic tribes started it. Who knows? It could have been, you know, just widespread everywhere. And, you know, every country wants to say that we started it. But it's always been a popular event um, in most lumberjack sporting competitions. So it's just been something that is really easy to set up um, in your backyard and if you have a couple axes and a piece of wood so yeah but axe throwing as an urban sport began about 17 years ago in 2006 oh well it hasn't been around long at all no and i remember when like the fad first hit and i saw people like throwing axes um and yeah it wasn't that long ago but i do feel like you and i are kind of late to the trend well yeah i guess if you look at it that way yeah <laughs> but it's when fun. did it hit tampa yeah oh good question i <laughs> I'm don't just know kidding. <laughs> um, but it's funny because when i was looking at this i was like oh i'm you know i want to look into like all different you know entertainment avenues for like adult parties I was going to say like adult entertainment, but that sounds (laughs) so bad. But like, you know, axe throwing and um, trivia, like things like that. But there's such a story behind the axe throwing one. I just kind of want to focus on that one. All right. Cool. Um, So 17 years ago, Matt Wilson from Toronto, Canada, um, he was working in the hospitality industry um, in a couple bars in Little Italy. And he had done axe throwing while on a camping trip. And as a way to get his friends together more regularly, he decided to create a small backyard league of axe throwing. Um, And it just started with his friends and his family. um, And they hung out one night a week, kind of like, you know, cornhole leagues and darts. Yeah, Yeah. So the first league he started started with eight people in 2006 and then he used facebook to launch a second league he like he created a facebook page you know grew to about 30 members in 2009 now skip ahead 12 years matt wilson is now the ceo of battle b-a-t-l which is backyard axe throwing league never Um, heard of it yeah well and so it's like it started in canada so it's like the big axe throwing league there okay and that operates in 23 locations across north america he heads a team of almost 400 employees um, who teach over 300,000 people each year how to throw an axe. And he's also the founder of the National Axe Throwing Championships. So he really took this passion and ran with it. Very cool. Yeah. Tons of, cel- like, you know, when you're looking at the axe throwing business now and, and his more specifically, um, so many celebrities endorse his brand. He's been featured on, I'm not even going to name all of it, um, like the History Channel. He's been profiled in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. Um, 
So the first axe throwing venue that he opened was in 2011. Um, it was a pretty small warehouse um, measuring about 1,200 square feet. And he just used the same format that he used um, to build the axe throwing league in his backyard. So it's literally just like the plywood. I think he even just like spray painted the target <laughs> on there. And then, you know, had the little, uh, I think, oh, I forget what those axes are called. Like the the hatchet axes. There's like a specific name to it. The ones that you throw? Yeah. Yeah. So Matt continued working full time while working on this venture since he didn't really know the longevity of this business. And he wanted the safety net of a steady income, which I think is kind of interesting because when you hear about startup stories, a lot of times I hear if you want to start a business, start a startup, you really have to like dive in headfirst. And a lot of people do quit their job full time and, you know, like go like all in on this business. But he was one of those people that was like, I don't really know where this is going. I am going to keep my full-time job. I don't know what you if you have any thoughts about that. No, I think you can do it either way. Yeah. Um, I think it depends on the business too. I mean, this seems like something that he could keep his job and it didn't take away from him being able to do his job. And this was something he did on nights and weekends right? until it grew big enough. I think that's perfectly reasonable okay yeah I wasn't sure I mean just like in that because you, you always hear it's always the stories of like yeah like you know blind faith I just closed my eyes and like went all in but he's he seems to be like a little bit more of a cautious guy because he finally saw the demand was not decreasing anytime soon when he uh, decided to quit his job and go full-time um, in the axe throwing business battle only had one location and it was booked out 12 weeks in advance and even like running the most conservative numbers his plan still made sense so that's when he knew that he could take the plunge wow but another challenge that he faced which i also thought was interesting was like he was really leery of interested investors at first and partners that wanted to grow the business he was like super protective of what he started and just how he wanted to run his axe throwing business and and the model of it which sometimes I do feel like startups and correct me if I'm wrong are hungry for you know any shark out there that would like help invest is that I think it depends if they need it um and and need it to grow fast yeah so that's a lot of the times they want to be able like they have a lot of if it's software they have a lot of features they want to build and Mm. they don't have the team to do it so they need to hire more people or they need salespeople to, or marketing people, or whatever, to like blitz the market and get out there. Because if you wait too long, you're right. too slow. You know, you might be overtaken by a competitor. Yes. Um, yeah. But if they also, if you know, if they're not making money yet, like it sounds like he was making tons of like, plenty of money because right. he had a physical product or service that you know he was selling. Yeah. And so he didn't necessarily need the investor money it sounds like well in order to grow he did and and help to run the business so elon jacobson was the investor who invested in his company he's the founder of firepower capital and i think what struck uh wilson was that he had no interest in changing anything about the way he ran his business all he wanted to do was fund the growth because like you said he felt like if he didn't do it somebody else would and um he'd lose out on that opportunity. So they signed a deal in August of 2014. Um, He brought in a a COO to operate 
and focus on national expansion. And from there, just like the, you know, other businesses kind of started from that model, the axe throwing market is currently worth $163 million. Um, there's about 360 axe throwing businesses in the U.S. And I thought this was an interesting stat. From 2018 to 2019, um, axe throwing sales increased by 317%. That's huge, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, axe throwing venues have become popular for group events like we've seen, birthday parties, bachelorette parties, corporate retreats. And yeah, so it's it's kind of this business that you don't really think about like, oh, I'm going to start an axe throwing business. But if you're passionate about it or, you know, if it's something that you were really excited about and it brought your friends and family together, I think that's really cool that um, he just saw it as a passion project. And then it became this this trendy thing that everybody kind of jumped in t- into. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I think, yeah, you've got a couple of different categories of people that you can go after. Like you'll go, you can go after the parties, uh, like you mentioned, uh, bachelor or bachelorette parties, birthday parties, you know, for adults. Um, but then you can also, ideally, you get a good percentage of people who do it, want to do it regularly in a yeah. league or something like that. Right. So you can get some recurring revenue. I, I wonder what percentage of their, you know, of their business is that. Yeah, true. I mean, he's also the founder of the national axe throwing championships so you know there's also a different like sector to that that maybe has more of a dedicated more professionals yeah Yeah. plus it's at i mean i don't know if it's exclusively or a lot of the times they're at bars these these venues so you know if you're a good bar you just attract a regular crowd and then maybe some of them want to do axe throwing like they would you know pay 20 bucks and you know spend a half an hour an hour throwing darts right yeah I thought it was interesting though because the axe throwing places that I had seen previously when they first started popping up were these like warehouse style looking things but the place that we went to it was like this nice bar and then it was very nice yeah yeah, and there was like this little nook where you could do the axe throwing but it wasn't that typical like lumberjack feel that I felt like no um, it was very private yeah um, yeah it was like a private space yeah yeah but still like it was okay if your axe like ricocheted off the walls it didn't like damage anything no they yeah they had um like cages like fence almost yeah like a fence around this the ceiling and the walls which was good because just in our group alone yeah i think every (laughs) every wall and portion of the ceiling would have been hit right mostly in the first like half an hour that we were there when people were just sort of feeling it out yeah yeah getting their their moves down but so you know that's the axe throwing business. But then I started like thinking about all the other like really cool like niche things that adult parties can can do these days and like really trendy stuff. So I just wanted to see if like you'd be interested in any of these things that are kind of trendy. Hit right me now. with some. Okay. So have you ever heard of rage rooms or smash rooms? I have never been, uh, but mm-hmm. I, yeah, tell me a little bit of like, what are we breaking? So well, anything. So it's like a release of stress and frustration by annihilating a room full of breakables so there's dishes that you can throw you can take a sledgehammer and like hit you know there's like vases porcelain stuff like furniture you can break through furniture you get like goggles and kind of like a safety gloves and stuff i'm picturing like in the movie office space you got the the printer they bring it out yes, to the field yeah. like a just beating it yeah it's it's that but like a whole room full of anything you could like everything's fair game i i'm pretty sure okay i would i would try that i mean yeah. that seems like a one-time activity for me right. probably but i mean maybe for some people 
everybody's looking for what their perfect outlet for stress is. Yes. And maybe somebody, you know, goes and does that one time and, and, you know, that's like getting a massage for them or whatever. <laughs> and they end up doing it once a month. Right. Right. I mean, I can see, you know, how like they do like bachelor parties are for like axe throwing. I can see like divorce parties going to these um, smash rooms. Maybe. <laughs> what about extreme sandbox? Have you heard of that? I think so. What is that though? So it's heavy equipment adventure companies. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know it was called that, but that, that rung a bell. Yeah. It's like you can drive. It's, it's a huge sandbox, let's say, like just a pit of like sand and dirt. And you can drive excavators, bulldozers, um, any of that like heavy machinery and just kind of like play around in the dirt that way. I would do it if somebody was having an event there, like, yeah. you know, a friend or something, but it's not something I would go out of my way to try on my own. Oh, no. Right. Yeah. I feel like you, yeah, you have to be with like a group. I've seen bachelor parties do it. Yeah. I mean, it's just not my, um, it's not my dream to go yeah. drive a bulldozer yeah. or a, an excavator. I think ATVs or something like that are, would be mm, more fun. Yeah. Um, escape rooms. I've done that once. Going into it, I thought I'd be better at it than I was, <laughs> but everybody else had already done it before. I think oh, that yeah. that because we were you, you were there that time, and yes. you had done it at least once or twice right, before I, that, I, I and so everybody else kind room. of already knew what was going on. Yeah, like, so everybody's like darting around the room <laughs> yeah. finding clues, and I'm just standing there in the middle, like, "What is happening?" <laughs> well, because you're you're also just like so like process oriented that you were probably like, "Why is everyone just like scattering all of a sudden? Like, what's our plan? What's our process?" But it was really like everyone just needed to like uncover clues real quick. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, I like it. I get really, um, I get really into it, and I get really competitive when I go in. Yeah, I know this about you. Yeah, I've never lost an escape room. Just, just oh, FYI, like been trapped forever. Well, just like not gone out <laughs> on time. <laughs> Paint and sip experiences, like painting with a twist, or yeah, yeah, yeah we did that once. Mm -hmm. um, are you asking me if I if I enjoy it? Yeah, or like, yeah, would you do it again? Sure. <laughs> yeah, well, it was fun. So I had thoughts about it. Um, I I like the concept of it. Like, obviously, like drinking with your friends is like great. And then like having something to do is great, yeah. too. But I found myself being really stressed to get that piece of artwork done that I wasn't enjoying myself. Yeah, same. I remember feeling very rushed. Yeah. Like, because the person doing it is like a professional right. and she's drawn this. Um, we, we went for St. Patrick's Day. She's drawn this picture of beer or whatever we drew. <laughs> A hundred times right. and she's going at the pace of a that, painter that she yeah. would go at yeah. and I mean she gave a little bit of extra time for us but right you know when you're enjoying yourself and yeah. you're drinking and like I th yeah it was it was either too short or we were just way too slow right right yeah I felt that way as well maybe like really good painters like have a different um an artist have a different um take on it but yeah um and then the last thing IV hydration parties oh I've never done that. Um, I don't know that I would want a party to do it, but like <laughs> I, I'm thinking that should be part of another party, yeah. like the morning after a wedding yes. or, you know, a bachelor party or something like that. Yeah. That would be great if like we had a, a wedding we went to recently and I, I think it was the bride and the bridesmaids mm -hmm. got them the morning of the wedding. Yeah. Like as a preventative a, yeah. IV. Well, and because they were out the night before too. So oh, right, right, just, right. Yeah. It just makes you feel better. I would do that. I would yeah. try that. Yeah. For sure. So for those who don't know, um, it, it's a hydration and vitamin infusion therapy to achieve optimal wellness, whether it's from a hangover, dehydration, vitamin or iron treatments. There's like all different kinds of things. And it's a 
you know, it could be you either go to a place or you can have an IV nurse come to your hotel room or your place. And if there's a bunch of people, they just kind of like all hook you up and you're all kind of hanging out and talking. I would do that as well. I I have not done it, but I think it's a cool idea. Well, those those are all the trendy uh, parties that adults do these days. Um, I'm sure you can do some of those things with kids too, but it's it's really cool that there's um, different things that you can do as an adult rather than just like sit around and like you know drink at a bar or watch. TV yeah, I was gonna say some of them don't even involve alcohol. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so today I've got for you. One of the greatest startup stories of all time. The greatest. Wow, this bar is set very high. <laughs> Get ready to have your mind blown. Okay. 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 Hold on. I'm mentally preparing. Okay. I'm ready? Good. All right. Let's go. I'm going to take you back to 2005. Okay. What all was right. I wearing? Yep. Got it. Okay. Uh, would you like to tell everybody? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> it was tragic. <laughs> okay. All right. So a guy named Brian Chesky is in design school at RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design. Yes. Yep. So he's studying to become a designer. And while he's there, he meets a guy named Joe Jebbia. Okay. Okay. I might say Gebbia sometimes because the this is actually an interesting story I just learned. He used to go by Gebbia, oh. but he recent, somewhat recently within the last couple of years did like a, a family mm. genealogy project oh, and wow. found out where his family was from and found out that they actually say Jebbia there. Oh, that's interesting. So he has actually changed how he pronounces his last name. And so now his last name is Jebbia. That's that's interesting. And I've actually heard people do that. There's a real housewife that she was Teresa Judice. And then now she says Judice. And I just thought maybe she was just being like an obnoxious <laughs> Italian. <laughs> but maybe she did a genealogy thing too. And she's just like, getting back to her you know what i shouldn't judge people maybe but change their name yeah but i'm not gonna say anything (laughs) okay (laughs) okay so joe was another designer um at risd and the two hit it off and became good friends and they graduated like i said in 2005 okay so after college brian takes a job as an industrial designer in la okay so moves across the country and joe actually ends up in san francisco also as a designer hmm and Brian enjoyed his job. You know, I mean, I think he was content, but he, he wasn't loving it. Mm. But Joe was like really loving the city of San Francisco. Mm. So for like two years, he was trying to convince Brian to move from L.A. to San Francisco and start a company with him. Mm. He just had this idea in his mind that the two of them should start a company together and they should do it in San Francisco because he was loving it. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. All friends just try to get you to like move near them. Yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily start a company together, but... <laughs> yeah, so in October of 2007, mm-hmm. Brian had heard it enough times, I guess, and mm-hmm. he decided, all right, I'm going to do this thing. So he quit his job oh, and wow. made the move from LA to San Francisco. Okay, so he's one of those ones that quit and went all in to start a business. He did. I mean, and when when you were saying that in the last segment, I was thinking about this story. So it, he actually took it to the extreme. So he only had $1,000 in his bank account. Oh my gosh. He it's... did not have a job lined up in San Francisco. And one month, his portion of rent for one month was $1,150. <gasps> so he didn't even have enough money to cover one month of rent. Oh my gosh. Without a job. He really went all in. Wow. Zero safety net there. Yeah. And his parents... <laughs> could not have thought it was a worse decision. So all they wanted for him 
was to get a stable job mm-hmm. out of college, which he did, right. and have health insurance. They thought, you know, that's what success was yeah. in America. <laughs> and, that is such the bare minimum that's so sad. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, they wanted him to have a good job, right, right. but like, you know, a job with health insurance. And all he did was quit his job <laughs> and no longer have health insurance. Oh, gosh. So he had to come up with $1,150 a month. And also they had a vacant third bedroom in the apartment that they had to cover rent for as well. Oh my and gosh. they didn't really want a third roommate. Oh, my goodness. They had to figure it out fast. And luckily, they had an idea. So they knew that there was a design conference coming up in San Francisco. They were designers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they probably knew people that were going to it. And they also knew that all of the hotels were sold out or were uh, going to be sold out for this conference. I think I know what story this is. <laughs> Did I not even mention what we're talking about no, but now but go on <laughs> <laughs> they assumed there were going to be more people looking for a place to stay mm-hmm. than you know just the hotels which were all sold out mm-hmm. so they had three air mattresses and they had a spare bedroom in their apartment right so they decided all right let's put up a website we'll call it air bed and breakfast <laughs> we'll put these three air beds in our spare bedroom and we'll see if we can get anybody to book out the room and stay on the floor on these air mattresses in our apartment. Wait, so the air came from air mattress? Yes, it did. Get out. I had no idea. That's so funny. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. So the site was originally called Air Bed and Breakfast. And they booked three guests and made $1,000 in one weekend. Oh, wow. The first weekend. Wow. Hmm. So these people felt that it was... Better to do that than to buy an air mattress when they got there and find somebody who already had a hotel room to like shack up with. I guess maybe they didn't know anybody. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, feels kind of weird. So they also thought that like this wasn't their idea for their company at first. Mm-hmm. Like they, they did think it's kind of weird. Um, it's probably not going to be very big, That's so very niche. Yeah. Um you know, thought maybe they could just do it once in a while when there was a conference in town, which is a lot of the time um, to make money. Mm-hmm. So the first time I heard about Airbnb, and if, if you haven't guessed by now, we're talking about <laughs> Airbnb. Surprise. Um, I learned about it a few years after this, but it was still, you know, generally the same concept at the time where you were renting out a room in someone else's house. Right. And that was very different. at the Like, I didn't want to do that um, at the time. Yeah. Well, wasn't that wasn't that the time though where like couch surfing was a thing? Yeah, so couch surfing was another website. Um, oh, there was an actual website called Couch Surfing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I just kind of remember like that time in our lives, and I don't know if it's because of the period in life that we were in, but like people were doing more couch surfing than I. Yeah, but it was still very niche. Like it was, it was like cer- only certain people would do that because right. like yes, then you yes, didn't yes. even necessarily have your own room. You might yeah. be on their couch yeah. in their living room. Like businessmen weren't like yes, yeah. no. This surfing. was like somebody who'd stay in a hostel. Yes, it's like yes. maybe yeah. you know a subset of people who would yes. stay in a hostel yep. would yeah. stay on someone's they were couch. Like hostel e people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they did realize though. Okay, after they did this, they were like, all right, well maybe there is a market for this. Let's test it out. Mm-hmm. So. Brian asked Joe, because Joe had been in San Francisco for a while, who's the best engineer that you know? And Joe immediately said, Nate, a guy named Nate Blasharzik. All right. He was a Harvard graduate and a computer engineer with past uh, startup experience. Mm -hmm. And Brian and Joe were both designers. So 
like they were great at the web design portion, but they didn't know how to build anything. Right. Um, they weren't programmers. They reached out to Nate and Nate was in. So they, you know, it was pretty easy for them to mm-hmm. find their programmer right. they needed. Right. So around this time, they also, the, the team also met Michael Seibel oh, just by chance. My goodness. Um, one of the founders of Justin TV. So if, if you've listened to our past episode of on Twitch, Michael Seibel was one of the founders of Justin TV, became Twitch, and then he also founded Social Cam, and now he's at Y Combinator. Uh, so Michael sort of acted as a mentor for them. Mm-hmm. He, he was running Justin TV at the time, and so he was giving them startup advice. And it was at this time that they changed their vision from purely around conferences mm-hmm. and, and finding people who wanted to go to conferences but couldn't find a hotel room to making a website that just made it as easy to book a room in someone's house as it was to book a hotel. Yeah. That was okay. what they wanted to do. This takes us to the 2008 Democratic National Convention mm-hmm. in Denver. Okay. Yeah, okay. So they just relaunched their website before this convention. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they decided to go to Denver was they realized there were only 20,000 hotel rooms mm. in in the Denver area mm. for an 80,000 seat arena wow. where Barack Obama would be speaking. Yeah, good research yeah. that they did. So they were still, you know, they were still trying to drum up users through these conferences and conventions and things like that. Yeah. Even though their their website, you know, they were ex- expanding beyond that. They they got covered by TechCrunch. Mm-hmm. But at first like they they had a really hard time getting any press outside mm. of that. TechCrunch oh, thought it interesting. was interesting because it was a startup. Um, right. to, you know, they got it out there for startups. But news media wasn't interested. They just thought it was weird. Even local media wasn't interested. So they ended up with about 800 hosts that signed up yeah. for the DNC to, mm-hmm. to have a guest in their house, mm-hmm. um, of which 80 people booked. Okay. So on the press side, though, there was one... There were one or two local blogs Mm -hmm. that decided they'd write about Airbnb. So Airbnb was, you know, pitching themselves to all these outlets. Mm -hmm. And after those blogs wrote their story and uh, some of the news media outlets read those stories and, you know, thought it was interesting, they actually called them back. Mm -hmm. They called the founders back and Mm -hmm. they said, hey, uh, would you be interested in coming on? So then they got on all of these uh, news Mm -hmm. outlets. They got on. CNN, CBS, yeah, um, you know all the big outlets. It just takes one to like open the door for them. Yeah, so something interesting happened around this time. Also, one potential host asked if he could rent out his whole house um, for mm. the convention because he was actually going to be out of town. Mm. So mm-hmm. he was like, I-, "I won't be there, but I can rent out my house. You know, I can. They can have the entire house, or you know, I can break it apart into separate rooms that different guests can uh, can rent out." And they said, no, we don't do that. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> they said, there has to be somebody there because who's going to make them breakfast? Yeah. Oh, oh, <laughs> so oh, right, because it's a whole... Breakfast like, was a requirement, was it initially funny. a requirement when it was air bed and breakfast. Oh, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, because that's what a and b is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So soon after this, they eliminated that requirement <laughs> when they realized, you know, oh, this could be bigger if, you know, For people sure. can, can rent out the entire house. But so th- th- I thought that was a funny story. <laughs> so... After the the DNC, you know, they didn't have a ton of bookings yet, but they had some and they had, you know, they demonstrated that they could make some money. So they started pitching investors. This was August 2008. And 
Michael Seibel, who we talked about, introduced the founders to about 20 investors. Mm -hmm. He emailed them. uh, So he gave them warm introductions to all of these potential investors. None of them invested. Mm -hmm. None of the 20. One of them in particular, uh, they told a story, the founders told a story about. He showed up late to the meeting, to the pitch. Mm -hmm. When he got there, he didn't come and sit down. He went and ordered a smoothie. Apparently, it was a pretty intricate smoothie because it took like 15 (laughs) minutes to to make it. And so when he finally did come sit down, they said he sat there slurping his smoothie. Oh, my gosh. For a few minutes, basically, while listening and just not saying anything. And then halfway through their pitch, he just puts his smoothie down, gets up and leaves. Oh, my gosh. And he doesn't say anything. So Brian and Joe are the ones that are there pitching him and they just look at each other and they're like, is he just going to the bathroom or something? And the dude just never comes back. Wow. That's so, I feel bad. Yeah. So So rude. I know they, I don't think they've said publicly who that investor was, but just by telling that story, obviously that investor knows who they are. And they also know that they missed out on one of the uh, greatest startups and best returns of all time. So right, yeah. I think that's good enough. I hope that smoothie was worth it. <laughs> yeah. So investors just felt like most people wouldn't open up their homes to strangers, mm-hmm. um, strangers they met over the internet. Like right, right. they just had a lot of doubts about what this could become. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what happened after the DNC, so yeah, so they had 80 bookings during the DNC. Uh, but after that, bookings fell to almost zero. Mm. Yeah, they really could only get bookings for big events. And it was a very manual process. Yeah, you know, they had right. to go there. Uh, they had to figure out a way to get all these people to their site. They had in in every market that they went to, they had this chicken and egg problem. Yeah. So like all, all marketplaces have this because you have to have the, the supply side and the buyer side. Mm-hmm. And they needed to do that in every city. Yeah. It's, it wasn't something like eBay where, you know, you were shipping. So you just had to have buyers anywhere right. and sellers anywhere. So, yeah. So th- that was a major problem for them. And they needed money badly. So Airbnb had only made like $5,000 total Ooh, at this point. Yeah. Um, and they didn't have any investment. And they had a baseball. So, you know, those, you know, those binders of baseball cards yes. like kids use yeah, yeah. Uh, to put baseball cards in. So they had one of those with all the plastic sleeves. Uh-huh. But instead of baseball cards in it, they had credit cards. Oh. And they were using those credit cards to fund their company. Oh. So when one would get maxed out, they'd yeah. throw it in the binder. Oh, my gosh. Open up a new one. Oh. Max it out. Throw it in the binder. So they racked up somewhere between thirty dollars and $40,000 of credit card debt. Oh, my god! Personal credit card debt funding that's, this company. That stresses me out. Yeah. So they, they realized we have to do something fast. So what they did... During the election, they created specialty branded boxes of cereal and they called them Obama O's and Captain McCain Crunch. Oh my gosh. And they sold these limited edition boxes of cereal, which were just repackaged cheap cereal, like the cheapest they could find, for $40 a box. Wait, you can do that? You can just resell cereal? They did it. Okay. They made these boxes. They moved the, the cereal into these boxes and they sold them and they wow. sold out in three days oh all God. of the wow. cereal that they made. They made $30,000 selling cereal. Oh my gosh. The the power of fandom. I mean, 
yes, I, I, I can kind of see that. Like you can, you can say something's a limited edition box of anything that people are like, except like Taylor Swift did Kelsey box of like generic cereal. I'm sure we'll go for a lot just because of fan, like the leveraging fandom. Yeah. I have no idea the legality of doing this, but they, I mean, they did it and they, <laughs> they made a bunch of money. So, um, that helped, you know, hold them over for a while mm-hmm. because that was what, six times more money than they'd made so far <laughs> on the Airbnb website. I'm surprised they didn't just like pivot and like <laughs> <laughs> to be serial entrepreneurs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at this time, as I mentioned, they had been talking to Michael <laughs> Seibel and he told them about Y Combinator. Mm. And so they applied to YC. I mean, they might have already known about Y Combinator living in San Francisco, but he sort of had an in there. Right. And they got an interview. Originally, when they got an interview, their interview was with Paul Graham. He thought their idea was crazy. Right. Um, just like most of the investors thought yeah. the idea was crazy. Yeah. Um, because at that time, their model still focused only on people staying in the same host as their guests. Yeah, right. And everybody kind of thought that this just wasn't going to be big like mm-hmm. it wasn't gonna be huge mm-hmm. um but before they left the interview so they had a feeling they weren't gonna get in right mm-hmm. but before they left the interview they gave paul graham a box of <laughs> their obama o's uh-huh. and they told him the story about the cereal okay. what they did to raise money and he loved it like he loved their hustle okay. he was like i don't know if this is gonna be your thing or what but like i i love what you guys have been able to do and mm-hmm. just you know that you've been able to to make this uh this happen so far and so they got into y combinator oh my and gosh. they started in january 2009 so in the winter 2009 batch at that time the investment from y combinator was twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars and there were 16 startups in that batch if you remember back to 2009 it was the middle of the financial crisis right so another reason it wasn't probably not very favorable for them to be raising money but you know they got this investment and more importantly for them, they got some pretty amazing advice from Paul Graham. Okay. So Paul Graham likes to say that it's better to build something 100 people love than something 1 million people kind of like. Oh, that's interesting. Because hmm. you can always grow from the, the 100 people that love you. You know, you're going to have loyal users who are going to tell their friends and, right. and you can grow. Right. But if you have a million people who kind of like you, you're probably going to go in the opposite direction because yeah. they're not going to share their experience. Right. They're probably gonna, he's probably going to get old. Yeah. You know, maybe it's a one time they, they use you once or whatever. Mm. Um, so in their first office hours with Paul Graham, Paul asked them where their market is basically like geographically. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we don't really have a market yet, but we've noticed New York is kind of growing. We have 30 listings there. Uh, so that was their biggest city on mm-hmm. the platform so far. Mm-hmm. And Paul Graham was basically like, well, then what are you doing here? Go yeah. to New York. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, that hadn't occurred to them. Right. So they went to New York. Oh, my gosh. And they did a couple of things that were very important. So another key piece of advice that Y Combinator is known for giving, and Paul Graham specifically, is at the beginning, you need to do things that don't scale such counterintuitive advice (laughs) it is well it is but at the beginning when you're trying to get that flywheel going you you know you can't just rely on viral growth you don't have any any Mm. you don't have enough users yet yeah so you need to do things to kickstart it um and so that's that's what you know they that's what they tell you to do so the founders noticed that the pictures on their website Mm -hmm. didn't look very great Mm. so you know they were 
poorly lit. Right. They were dark. They weren't staged well. Right. Um, so they offered to their hosts, they said, hey, we're going to send out somebody to take professional photos right. of your place. Yeah. Um, and we'll swap them out with the pictures you have on the site. And we think it'll help you get more listings. Yeah. And obviously, you know, these these hosts are trying to make more money. So they said, sure, yeah, send somebody out. Right. So Brian and Joe fly out to New York City where they're going to do this experiment themselves. They rent a camera. Oh, they're the photographers? Yeah, they're, oh. they're not going to hire anybody. <laughs> so, and, so scrappy. Yeah, well, and there's another reason that we'll get to in a minute. So, and they, they meet with the hosts and they take the pictures. And besides getting better pictures, so they're designers. They have, right. you know, an eye for these things. Yeah. They also have a nice camera. True. Besides being able to get these nice pictures, they also get a chance to talk to the hosts mm. about how their experiences how their experience is going and learn about the problems that they're having with the website, yeah. with the the process for, for hosting, mm-hmm. the, maybe the what they see as some of the problems that buyers might be facing, like those sorts of things. So Joe and Brian leave New York and head back to San Francisco with these photos, all of these ideas. Yeah. And they send these ideas to Nate, who is working on the site. Yeah. And Nate says, oh, I can fix all that stuff. That's not too hard. He fixes it all in one night. Oh my gosh. Okay. And they swap out these photos and they reach back out to the hosts a couple of days later or the next day and tell them, oh, hey, we've implemented all mm-hmm. of the changes that you guys asked for. And the hosts couldn't believe it. <laughs> you know, that they had, they had the, fo- well, they couldn't believe that the founders flew out and, uh, you know, took pictures of their house. Right. First of all. Uh, but then they made all these changes for them. Yeah. It's like rule number three in Y Combinator. Talk to your users. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they're in order, but like, yes, that is one of the main rules. I'm like learning all these things. <laughs> So the next week, their revenue for Airbnb, which was stuck at like $200 a week mm-hmm. for months, mm-hmm. doubled oh to God. $400, yeah. which was a huge deal. I mean, yeah. they hadn't seen any growth or traction yeah. or anything. It's, Aww. you know, it's only $400 a week, but, but still. that's huge. Yeah. Those were the only notice, you know, notable changes that they made. Right. So they knew what caused yep. their growth. Yeah. So yeah. they said, well, let's go back and do it again. Yeah. So they flew back across the country to New York. They did it again. They went to even more hosts. Mm -hmm. And the next week, their revenue increased to $800. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's that face-to-face presence of the users seeing like the founders and like feeling heard. Well, yeah, but I mean, these are the sellers. So you still need to attract the buyer. So I mean, the the bigger thing was, yeah, learning about their problems and, but the biggest thing was the photos. Yeah. Like yeah. if you're looking at a place to stay at, right. I mean, okay, think about even right now. Yeah. If, if they don't have oh, good pictures, yeah. I mean, whether you're going to buy a place right. or rent an Airbnb. Say, realtors do this all the yeah. time. Yeah. So, I mean, they just make such a huge difference. Right. That traction continued. They had sort of cracked the, the formula a mm-hmm. bit of how they could make this thing grow faster or at least one piece of it. Then an investor at Sequoia, uh, one of the big venture capital firms, came by Y Combinator and asked Paul Graham, who he sees as like the big uh, potential breakouts in the batch. Mm -hmm. And Paul said, well, I I really like these guys at Airbnb, Mm -hmm. like what they're doing. So Sequoia met with Brian and Joe. And while everybody else told them pretty much, you know, all the other investors told them that their idea was stupid, Mm -hmm. Sequoia thought it was brilliant. It just takes one. Yeah. And... (laughs) In April 2009, Sequoia invested $585,000 oh into Airbnb. Gosh. Wow. That's their big break. <laughs> they really needed that because 
they had heard <laughs> so many times that their idea was stupid. Yeah. And, you know, when you hear it that many times, even oh. even if you're that passionate about it, you might start to believe it. Right, right. And so, you know, they needed that. So they said that that was a decisive moment for them in, in sort of turning their company around. Mm-hmm. So by August 2009, they were making $10,000 a week oh. through Airbnb. Man. So growth really started to pick up fast. So there's a couple of different things that they did to um, get the site to continue growing. One, the founders, Joe and Brian, kept traveling to different cities, to big events, to get the word out about Airbnb, to help with taking photographs. They also built out a feature in Airbnb that, with a click of the button, Mm -hmm. allowed hosts to repost their listing directly to Craigslist. Oh. Which... I think violated Craigslist terms. Yeah. Like, I don't oh. think you're allowed to do that, okay. but they got away with it for long enough yeah. that, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, the people could immediately broadcast their Airbnb listing onto Craigslist yeah. where millions and millions of people were searching right. way more than knew about Airbnb. Right, right. And so they got a ton of traffic that way. Oh, that's funny. They also got ho- more new hosts that way because... Mm. Airbnb, because Craigslist had a um, housing section. Yeah. And so they would reach out to hosts to people that were renting out their houses on craigslist and say hey you can do this better you know you you can manage this better on airbnb yeah yeah. and so they got a ton of new hosts that way Um, also frowned upon by craigslist but they were able to do this and i mean as a founder you've got to be scrappy like that Um, i know they showed that they they were definitely think outside the box i mean everything from the cereal box to like posting on craigslist Shows that they'll, yeah, they'll break, they'll bend rules a little bit. Yeah. They expanded their professional photography program mm-hmm. so that, you know, they had more than just the founders doing it as well. Oh, yeah. Um, oh. To, you know, more listings because they learned through paying attention to the metrics that it actually increased bookings up to three times mm-hmm. by having professional looking photos for, for sure, yeah. a, a listing. By November of 2010, they had booked a total of 700,000 nights oh my gosh. on Airbnb, and they raised a Series A round of funding for $7.2 million. Oh, my gosh. So at this point, oh my no longer did people think their idea was stupid, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty awesome. That, that you know, is. they believed in it for so long, and now the investors are finally starting to come around. Yeah, yeah. And again, it just takes one, and then... People are like, oh, wait, what am I missing out on? I want in on this, too. Yeah. And when they saw the I mean, they saw the growth. I mean, it's hard to deny at this point when when, the numbers are there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they were also, you know, in addition to being scrappy, they were also pretty frugal at the beginning. Uh, I'm sure. At first out of necessity. Right. But at, at this point, so they had 25 employees and all of them, including the founders, were working out of Brian and Joe's apartment. The three bedroom. Yeah. Oh so gosh. I don't think they were renting out the third bedroom anymore. <laughs> but so they they would have meetings in the bedroom. They would they would have interviews like in the hallways or on the roof. It, yeah. They just used all the space that they could. Oh, my gosh. I would be. I don't know if I like went to interview and it was like someone's bedroom. I'd be like, yeah, I don't want to work here. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the startup life, I guess. Yeah. They were very early stage. Yeah. So Airbnb has faced some notable issues throughout their lifespan though so the first one is regulation in a lot of cities especially big cities with big powerful uh hotel right markets yeah the hotel industry didn't just roll over here right. and uh and, yeah. and let airbnb come in i'm sure so in new york city for example there is a very high hotel occupancy rate mm-hmm. there is also 
a housing shortage mm-hmm. and not a ton of space in general. And so the hotel industry fought hard against Airbnb. They argued that letting people rent out their apartments would further worsen the problem of affordable housing in the city because if more properties are becoming rentals, that means fewer properties are for people who live there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And obviously this is what the hotel industry is going right. to say. Yeah, yeah. Regardless of whether, you know, I think there is some truth to it, but like that's obviously going to be their stance. In late 2013, New York City actually started to crack down on what they called, what some people called these illegal hotels. Because these cities had different restrictions and regulations, most of which weren't really enforced, but like individuals weren't supposed to be able to own more than two rental properties. Oh, I did hear about this. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. So, and although it was a small percentage of hosts that owned more than two, they actually made up a large percentage of, I think like a third of the listings mm-hmm. on Airbnb mm-hmm. because, you know, some of those individual hosts owned a lot of properties right. that they were listing out on Airbnb. Another challenge that they faced, and it took them a long time to have this happen. So they began working on Airbnb in 2007. The first time that there was ever really a serious incident at a host's property mm-hmm. um, on Airbnb wasn't until 2011. Okay, wow. And I'm surprised. Yeah. Uh, so this place got trashed. Um, oh. They had a part. You know, they had a party. Oh. The the occupants they trashed the place. People stole a bunch of really oh, expensive stuff. Gosh. The founders knew this was going to happen eventually. Uh, mm-hmm. Like they had in the back of their mind, they, they but like they were very fortunate. It took a few years and, you know, well past the beginning of Airbnb, they'd already raised a couple rounds of funding. Mm-hmm. They had already grown pretty huge. So even though they got some negative publicity from this, you know, it wasn't enough. They were far enough along. It didn't kill the company. Right. But they realized they really had to focus on building trust and the safety measures at Airbnb. Yeah. So they implemented they implemented uh, a few different improvements or several different improvements, but one of the things that they implemented was a host guarantee up to a million dollars, basically a million dollars of insurance okay. if anything happens to your place. Yeah, wow. Which, you know, made hosts feel much more comfortable right. in the aftermath because obviously when something like that happens, hosts start worrying. Mm-hmm. So they knew that they were covered. And then the, the last thing that I'll mention that had a huge impact on their business was COVID, the mm. COVID pandemic. Yeah, right. So I don't know if like the general public was aware of this or not, but Airbnb, I mean, they thought, I mean, COVID was basically like an existential threat to their business, right? right. Like there, nobody was traveling. Right. Yeah. They lost all of their revenue. Right. Oh. And they didn't know how long this was going to go on for. Right. Yeah. So it really, the, the founders said, you know, this felt like this could be it. So events were canceled. Yeah. Um, people couldn't fly, for, you know, for a while. Like even if they could, people weren't comfortable with it. Right. They were canceling vacations. Yep. And the other thing is in December 2019, mm-hmm. they had filed the, they had started the paperwork to take Airbnb public. They were planning oh, to go public in 2020. Gosh. And when COVID hit in March 2020, yeah. you know, those plans just fell apart oh, because their revenue right. f- flatlined. Yeah. I mean, the whole travel industry was affected by it. Yeah. So, yeah. so Airbnb went into crisis mode. If I mean, they had to invent one because they hadn't had something like nobody had had anything like this happen before. So they immediately took out a big loan because mm-hmm. they didn't know how long they were going to be without business. Uh, so they got a huge loan. They provided a pretty significant payout to their hosts Mm -hmm. to help them 
sort of weather the storm during the pandemic since they weren't getting revenue. Right. Which That's was nice. really nice of them to do. Yeah. They refunded, they fully refunded all of their guests mm-hmm. who had booked time during the, the pandemic. So, you know, without any questions, they just right. said, you can't travel or, or you don't feel comfortable. It's fine. Like yeah. money back. They had to lay off employees for the first time in their history. Oh, yeah. They laid off about 1,900 employees, which was like 25% of yeah. their staff. Yeah. But one thing that they did, which I remember reading about this at the time, they gave a very generous severance package. Mm. So they allowed employees to keep their company equipment so they could keep their laptops, uh, which you know is pretty cool because in case you didn't have right. a computer, you're going to need that for job hunting and right you know, whatever. They gave them full health benefits for 12 months. Wow. Paid. That is really nice. And a pretty generous severance package too. I think the minimum that any employee got was 14 weeks plus additional time for years of service. Yeah. And and they actually kind of started a trend, it seems like, in, you know, in tech of doing that when at least the larger tech companies had to lay off employees during uh, COVID. Um, they tended to give out uh, pretty large severance packages. Fortunately for them, the damage to their business only lasted about a quarter of the year. So the interesting thing was people started to travel again only a few months later. Right. And instead of staying in hotels yeah, they felt where there's going to be a lot of people and yeah. crowds, you got to get in an elevator with somebody, you got to stand in line to check in, yeah. like all this stuff. People wanted their own place yeah, somewhere. Yeah, they felt more comfortable like being in an Airbnb. Yeah. That's so, so true. It actually led to another boom in Airbnb's business. Oh, wow. It was good for them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Another thing was people started taking longer vacations. Mm, um, Right. And so they they would stay longer uh, and hosts would have their places rented out for longer durations. Mm -hmm. They'd take more trips more often. You know, they drive somewhere closer to home rather than flying. People could also, people were working from home so that they could like stay in Airbnbs longer and just work from there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so many people moved during the pandemic. And, right. you know, some of them did w- just what you said. They, they moved from Airbnb to Airbnb. Yeah. Because um, they realized, you know, for a lot of people, it was the first time they could ever work from home and they could work from anywhere. Right. So right. Airbnb really benefited from, uh, I mean, they, I don't, they would never phrase it like this, yeah. but like the aftermath of the early pandemic yeah. um, really helped Airbnb. Right. So, and I mean, another thing with hotels, a lot of times people chose hotels because of the amenities, like if they needed a gym or they needed mm-hmm. um, a spa or something like that. Most of those things were closed. Yeah. Right, <laughs> so, right. you know, there really wasn't a reason for people to be going to, to, you know, prefer hotels at this time. Right. It didn't take long. Airbnb ended up going public in December of 2020. Oh, God. So they wow. still went public yeah. in 2020. Yeah. As of 2023, there are over 4 million hosts and six million property listings worldwide on Airbnb. In the U.S. alone, there's over six hundred sixty thousand Airbnb listings, while there are a little over five million hotel rooms in the U.S. Yeah, wow. So you know it hasn't surpassed the the uh, volume of hotels, but it's still growing fast. Yeah, it's climbing. And people stay at Airbnbs about two and a half times longer than a typical hotel stay. Interesting. Do you know why? I think it's just, I, I think part of it is that a lot of, for a lot of business travel, um, you have very short stays mm. in hotels. Okay. And right. uh, while some people do travel and stay at Airbnbs for business, uh, they tend to be used more for vacations, right. uh, which tend to be longer, things right. like that. I, I, it didn't, you know, what I've researched didn't actually say, but that's, you know, one hypothesis I yeah. have. Yeah. Okay. So as of today, 
Airbnb is currently worth over $88 billion. Oh my gosh. Just when I think about like what they started with. Yeah. And all those investors that passed yeah. early on in Airbnb. I mean, every investor has a story of, Regret. you know, the one that got away yeah. or like you know, the company they should have invested in. Yeah. But like you have to feel extra scummy to yeah. have been rude, like how, as rude, rude as some of the investors were to them. Smoothie man. Yeah. Uh, so that's the story of Airbnb. That is a steep journey. I mean, I there were times where like I would put myself in their situation and I would have probably just given up pretty quickly because it's scary and because like, yeah, you don't know what the next step when when you can't tell what the future holds that's a scary thought to me and I mean there's there's a reason why maybe like I haven't like jumped all in on something or you know whatever but yeah I mean just quitting your job and like not even having enough in the bank to pay for next month's rent and not that I mean that was before they even had an idea right like yeah yeah and then the conviction to take out all these credit cards and rack up that much personal debt. I know. When, I mean, they saw something that other people didn't see clearly. Um, But that's not to say that this was a, like, this was a guarantee. Like Mm -hmm. they could have just as easily failed. Right. Oh yeah. I know. They had to have a lot of things go right. 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 And they did. Someone's definitely watching out for them. (laughs) But um, I think it's interesting that we both kind of talked about two businesses that had a huge liability associated with them for sure because yeah. when I was looking into like the axe throwing thing um there was a an article about like uh, you know how much does it cost to start an axe throwing business and like the biggest thing was like insurance liability coverage okay I meant to ask you that yeah. during that segment <laughs> yeah but it actually they did say that um there's really not a lot of injuries that happen even though like people are drinking and sure and all that but I mean it's just something to think about and and when you think about like the Airbnb business as well the liability, you know, as renters and as hosts. Yeah, it's enormous. I mean, there have been there. Like I mentioned, one of the um, trashings of a, of a place. Right. I mean, but people have also unfortunately died um, at yeah. their Airbnb. Right. I mean, it's just statistically going to happen eventually, right? right? With millions and millions of people staying at Airbnbs right. a year. So, yeah. But yeah, that's a lot of liability. Yeah. Well, I've seen now there's like these trends on TikTok where um, Airbnb hosts will show what was left at their Airbnb after like a one night stay or a two night stay, depending on if it's like a bachelorette party or um, a proposal. So it's it's funny because like, you know, if it's a bachelorette party, you'll see like all of these like half open like bottles of champagne, yeah, um, you know, penis things everywhere and, and whatnot. Um, there was one, it was like what I found after um, a one night booking at like my Airbnb and it looked like it was set up for a proposal, but like the the petals were still there, like the ring box was still there. I think it was like a, a proposal gone wrong. Oh no! <laughs> but it's just funny. I mean, like Airbnb is like such a part of. Wouldn't you think you really thing. needed that box though? After yeah, that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Definitely taking that box. I don't back. know what happened. I know. I. <laughs> the temperature is about to rise because we are going to talk about our hot mom of the week. Last time I checked, I'm still hot, real hot. You like that little segue there? <laughs> I knew you had something up your 
odd sleeves <laughs> over there. <laughs> I'm wearing puffy sleeves. <laughs> like, like an episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> no, it's really trendy right now to, to wear sleeves like this, I promise. All right. Um, I'll let Jerry know if anyone can to take visualize. that shirt out. No, when you look up fall, fall tops or like autumn tops, like all puffy sleeve type things. Puffy polka dots? Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know about the polka dots. I wasn't really sold on it. Anyway, yes, I had something up my puffy sleeves and it was that um, segue. But I loved that we were talking about travel. And um, when I think about travel and like different experiences that you can do, there is a content creator. Her name is Tina Pick, P-I-K. Her handle is Hangry by Nature. Um, And it's a joint account with her and her husband and really like her family. She has two little boys. Hangry by Nature is her handle on Instagram and TikTok. And she is an Australian mom and content creator. Um, She shares an account with her husband who's like the videographer and, you know, visual creator, um, Andy. And they help inspire parents to get the hell outside, regain some form of sanity, and create meaningful memories with their little humans. So it's all about traveling um, and just just going out and traveling with your family. Um, They have this awesome blog that talks about, you know, a lot of people say when you have kids, your life is over. But, you know, they take the stance on when you have kids, your life doesn't end. It just begins. So it just captures like all of these hacks that they use when they're traveling with their two boys whose names are Flo and Ref. They because they're based in Australia, um, they typically like show them traveling to like parts of Asia, like Korea, Bali, Japan, Thailand, but then they've also gone like to other parts of Australia and Germany and um, the UK. So what she says that they're they're one of those people that quit their full-time jobs and they went into Hangry by Nature all in. Um, It taught them how to tolerate each other 24-7. It gave them cultural awareness and their kids um, started learning cultural awareness at a very young age and it allowed them to spend a lot of quality time together. So this is one of those things where, yes, they gave up a lot to do this, but they had no regrets and they would never turn back. Um, Their content provides tips and inspiration sprinkled with a lot of humor and they have done a lot of really cool like experiences. They've done like an underwater scooter tour, roar and snore, which is um, a glamping experience at the Melbourne Zoo, oh, um, hot cool. air balloon rides. Um, they've featured, they found poop museums. <laughs> There's apparently museums. You don't have to go to everything. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they find all these things. And then, and I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if like they did axe throwing? And they did. They went to an axe throwing place oh, in 2021. So I think that they're, it's pretty cool. I really love how they just embrace the nature of, yeah, you can still travel. It doesn't matter like, you know, what your life experiences are. I, I actually saw when she first had her second son, like he was a baby and she was like, hey, um, we have a new traveler. She kind of like introduced him as like, he's going to come along, you know, with us. They did, you know, there was like downtime during the pandemic where they weren't really traveling. And so they were just kind of stuck inside because in Australia, they were really locked down. Oh, that's right. There, yeah. But then they were able to travel again and it 
picked up. But yeah, I really, I really like her and and her husband and and her whole family. They're really cute. It's two little boys, so it reminds me of us, <laughs> except they travel a lot more. <laughs> well, I was gonna ask though, how do they? So did they already have this? So they have 1.8 million. I'm reading on their Instagram. It says 1.8 million plus TikTok followers and 487,000 Instagram followers. Did they have a following like this already when they quit their jobs or did they finance this little adventure some other way because I mean yeah not everyone can take this many trips I know especially without a you know a regular (laughs) job I'm not sure but they definitely leverage the brand ambassador collab part of you know being influencers and content creators like really well like they will partner with you know certain hotels you know and and stay at their hotel eat at like different restaurants and just and be able to really showcase them so they are able to get a lot of really good deals yeah well that i mean but then that means they must have already had a large following because hotels won't care if you're (laughs) if you've got a hundred uh instagram followers we need to get on that get some get some collabs yeah okay Yeah, so um, check her out. She's she's got some really good content. Her name's Tina Pick, but um, her handle is Hangry by Nature. Follow her on Instagram and TikTok. Well, that's all we've got today. If you enjoyed the episode, hit the subscribe button and reach out on social media. Dot coms and hot moms. Signing off.